0: Nice and tidy It's a rule I learned in school Get your money every Friday Happy endings are the rule So divide up those in darkness this is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. (laughs) Today is Tuesday, September the 18th, 2007. (laughs) Oh, I'm all crabby today. I had a visit this morning from HUD, that's Housing and Urban Development. It's a federal agency. I'm really ashamed of my reaction to that sort of thing. It's petty paranoia. "'I didn't pass inspection. "'Oh, dear, my one-bedroom third-floor apartment at the Harriet Tubman Terrace "'has a blocked door leading to the balcony. "'You know, fire regulations demand a clear path from the bedroom to the exit, of course. "'They're right, I'm wrong. "'I should follow a few simple rules.' You know, I've just uh, arranged things the way I like them. I think I'm getting old. We must be careful of that, you know. Some of us get set in our ways. Uh-huh. I'm also going to call Clutterbusters. My balcony is just loaded with stuff. I can see my mother turning over in her grave. <laughs> she, she used to say, yes, get it out of sight. She was a stern housekeeper. I used to leave all my feathers and hats and baubles and beads lying around. Mother was an architect. She studied uh, Frank Lloyd Wright in college. That was her ideal. Form follows function. Interiors should be spacious and uncluttered. Like your mind, my dear, she would say. Yes, an uncluttered mind. Clarity, clarity. (laughs) Frank Lloyd Wright's dictum was, The eye should rest, meditation, serenity, silence, emptiness, no lack of void. Ah. Actually, I sometimes wonder if my need for all that stuff, all my toys, is that rebellion or just sloth? I mean... (laughs) Mother died in 1947. I was 13. Now, now I don't think I was ever a rebellious daughter. Uh, uh, not with mother, I mean. Uh, she did everything for me. As the people said back in the day, she spoiled me rotten. No, nope. my piles of papers. It's just my ongoing obsession with synthesis. You know, trying to squeeze the meaning out of thought, trying to figure things out. You know, draw the line, make the tote, digest the world of words. There is more to know, more to understand. That's the way to freedom, to liberation. I think. Despair. Is silly at my age, I'm 73, as a powerless female in this decadent so-called democracy. (laughs) I'm just baffled. At a loss, our culture says we should want to have things, have everything, you know, consume, acquire stuff. Uh, I do collect junk. That's that's my contribution to the uh, economy, right? I collect... um, Things like Pablo Neruda, seashells, dolls, artifacts, just bags of stuff, you know. I like a child. I like something that's shiny and bright. Uh, I have no wealth, no money at all. Uh, I am blessed with the Social Security now and with that HUD housing if I can keep it. How could I have been so stupid as to block the doorway? Uh, I'll have to move the furniture. I will have to conform. I don't know why I'm so upset by such a little thing, great goddess. Think about it. Think of New Orleans. Think how many people on this planet, you know, not only uh, don't know where they put their shoes, they don't have any shoes. I'm going to pull myself together go down to the Goodwill today, get one more filing cabinet. I only have seven filing cabinets. Uh, that way I can get a synthesis, connect the dots, and become an essentialist before I die. You know, get it all together before all is lost. The... uh Late, great American poet Emily Dickinson wrote that her business was circumference, circles, the round world. Gertrude Stein used to say, the world is round. I try to connect the dots, make the circles, cycles. See that we are there at the beginning again. You know, we will know it for the first time. Uh, we just have to. What is the word? Keep going, and we go back to the beginning. Stein, Gertrude Stein's style. Uh, she called it a continuous present, ongoing present. Um, I must do more of Gertrude Stein on these airwaves. Uh, too many people tell me it's too esoteric, too arcane. You know, defeat. <laughs> That's nonsense. Gertrude Stein has the 21st century pegged. She said the 20th century was the century where everything uh, destroyed itself. She had that pegged too, yes. Circumference, making the circle, and then you synthesize it, boil it down, or let it soak. I'm trying to let it soak in the sorrows of our time. Uh, wait patiently see what will emerge from this petri dish. Uh, history is a petri dish. We don't know what will grow, which things will, what you'll call that, uh, bloom. The times, they are certainly a changing. Okay, yes. Uh, it's funny how, yes, the uh, train of history, when it makes a sharp turn. Most of the thinkers, well, half of them anyway, just fall off the train, just crash and, you know, disappear. The, the great red star on the, yes, that, that's the one that has burnt out. Uh, we had hoped that, that the great red star would come to something, uh, communism gone the way of all the other absolutes as an ideal. You know, we never realized it. Uh, There's no socialism. Uh, Socialists got hold of it, wrecked it. (laughs) Same with democracy these days. We understand, most of us know, that our human condition is imperfect at best. Just try to make it a little bit better. You know, good is done in small increments. On the other hand, you know, you can wreck everything uh, in a minute. Look at what Washington, D.C. has done. Yes. Uh, bad stuff. That can be overnight. Uh, we can only keep trying. It's this Sisyphus task, you know? Keep pushing, move the thing an inch. Beckett said, try again, fail again, fail better. <laughs> I remember when I was young, the wise women, the bourgeois women, they said, "Oh, we must try to be happy we must we must try to to enjoy life, yes, whatever happy means, yes, when you think when you think you can't keep up, just go to the head of the march, you know, go to the uh, the um, let's say I guess today it would be women in pink, you know, just get out there and go right to the front." I don't know, uh <laughs> trying to be happy. I thought about that the other day, and I realized I wasn't going to have a tidy apartment and so I just gave up. I thought, well i just i won't even I won't even grapple with that struggle in a hundred years, Where will it be? So I went out and I went to the um, basic bird on college, and I acquired a new cat. I got this cat. I named her Dementia. Dementia in absentia. She absents herself. She goes under the bed. She knows what to do in these times. Yes, hide. <laughs> anyway, she's a charming cat. I, I think, what is it? Just, I think that a cat, a cat is the thing I need to remind me, you know, teach us to care and not to care. Cats care desperately about, uh, what is it, their existential survival, but uh, they don't care about us. They don't care if we ever die. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I was thinking this morning, watching my cat, uh, how nice it would be not to know all the things we know, how to live moment to moment like a little mammal, it is so soothing to watch a little mammal that does not have language, not our language, of course. Yes, indeed. Uh, anyway, what I thought I would do today is take a look at the most exciting book that's on my floor. It's the top of the uh, clutter pile, you know. Uh, it's a book that I want to give to my uh, economist son, it's by Naomi Klein. It's been all over the media. She's been all over the media all week. Amy Goodman had her on, and uh, she's talking about the violence of capitalism. She has a book. Uh, it's called The Shock Doctrine. If you want to check it out, go to your uh, local store get an essay called Disaster Capitalism by Naomi Klein it's in Harper's magazine her book is from Metropolitan Books The Shock Doctrine and she adapted the book into this essay uh for Harper's magazine you can get that one uh Disaster Capitalism Tells all about the ways that disaster has become a profit-making industry. Yes, I love it. <laughs> I think of the carpetbaggers down south after the Civil War. There's so much. I I think I first noticed it when I realized that there was a profit being made out of poverty. You know, I thought this is the most curious, curious. Uh, I, I thought I think when the prisons they started opening prisons for profit and I thought there there's just got to be something wrong with that and uh then I thought again the fact is uh it has become an industry. The stock market goes up now. Uh I think uh according to Naomi Klein, it went down for the last time uh nine eleven. Now it just uh goes right up 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 (laughs) anyway I remember um, when I first read Milton Friedman and my son tried to explain to me uh, all about the free market uh, I got very upset and I got very confused Um, I'm one of those people who was raised in uh, the 50s and I thought that of course Sooner or later, we would get some kind of socialist uh, arrangement, you know, something reasonable the way they have in the uh, more enlightened, wise European countries. Uh, Actually, (laughs) Uh, I believe there was enough to go around. It looked like it from where I sat. Uh, Of course, I was egalitarian. I believed in equity. Equity. And then I read David Stockman, the fellow who wrote, um, what was it? Uh, he was Reagan's economic advisor. He wrote, uh, "I do not accept that equality is a moral principle." And I thought, what, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, you know, as I keep saying, in the ice cream parlor of my youth. Uh, <laughs> We, we complained about materialism, you know, uh, we were beats. Don't like the word beatnik. I think Herb Kane invented the word beatnik, but, uh, uh, we, we dreaded the, the great god Moloch. Uh, we had strangely all the comforts of life without very much wealth. I mean, it was wealth, of course, uh, But the materialism, the conspicuous consumption, that we didn't have. I remember living in a gated community down in uh, Laguna Beach. Beatific beach, absolutely beautiful. And I suppose uh, they were trying to keep the ordinary folks off the beach. Uh, Anyway, (laughs) I remember being a little outraged. They had a um, just a man at the gate to check and make sure that you lived there in Three Arch Bay before they let you in. Uh, anyway, we complained bitterly in the 50s about Moloch, about the, uh, what is it, uh, the world in which you were judged by your possessions, the things that you, uh, you own. I'm not sure, uh, I don't think, what is it, it's hard to say how much, uh, how much things have changed, they've, what is it, I think we we have to look at the scale of the privatization, you know, thinking of Blackwater this morning, bye-bye Blackwater, the uh, carpetbaggers down in, uh, in, uh, (laughs) the, uh, in Iraq where, Everything now is for sale. Uh, The country, obviously, uh, outsourcing, they call it. Um, Let me read you just a little snippet of Naomi Klein in her essay, Disaster Capitalism. Uh, She writes, everywhere in Iraq, the wildly divergent values assigned to different categories of people are on crude display. In Iraq, yes, the lucky get Kevlar, the rest get prayer beads. <laughs> she writes, like most people, I saw the divide between Baghdad's green and red zones as a simple byproduct of the war. I have a footnote here. I was thinking of the the guards now in New Orleans. Uh, that scene, of course, is similar to the scene in Iraq. Uh, Naomi goes on to say, this is what happens when the richest country in the world sets up camp in one of the poorest. But now, after years spent visiting other disaster zones, from post-tsunami Sri Lanka to post-Katrina New Orleans, I've come to think of these green zone, red zone worlds as something else fast-forward versions of what free market forces are doing to our societies. Even in the absence of war, in Iraq the phones, pipes, and roads had been destroyed by weapons and trade embargoes. In many other parts of the world, including the United States, they have been demolished by ideology, by the war on big government, the religion of tax cuts, the fetish for privatization. (laughs) Ah, yes. She says that in Iraq, Westerners and their Iraqi colleagues have checkpoints at the entrances to their streets. They blast walls in front of their houses. They have body armor, private security guards on call at all hours. They travel the country in menacing armored convoys with mercenaries pointing guns out the windows as they follow their prime directive to protect the principle With every move, they broadcast the same unapologetic message. We are the chosen. Our lives are infinitely more precious than yours. The middle-class Iraqis, meanwhile, cling to the next rung down the ladder. They can afford to buy protection from local militias. They are able to ransom a family member held by kidnappers. They may ultimately escape to a life of poverty in Jordan. But the vast majority of Iraqis have no protection at all. They walk the streets exposed to any possible ravaging. Nothing between them and the next car bomb, but a thin layer of fabric. Now, I'm interrupting here. As I read this essay by Naomi Klein, I kept thinking in my uh, naive, childish way... Of the television um the television series Rome as very funny. They were very careful, the writers showed you what happens in a city, you know, when it's under siege and when there's certainly no police power, uh, the fortunate can pay for protection. Remember one scene in Rome they pay one of the um local strongmen, he's a Jew and uh, uh, The uh, uh, Octavian, the future uh, emperor, says to him, he says, we don't expect you to work for the state, you know, pay you personally, you know. Obviously, you're an outsourced, you're a a mercenary. Uh. (laughs) Anyway, Naomi Klein goes on about the crumbling infrastructure, both at home and abroad, uh, she says, when the crumbling infrastructure is blasted with increasingly intense weather, that's Katrina, the effects can be as devastating as war. You don't need a war, you know. You just, just leave things alone. Uh, they will fall apart. She writes, last February, for instance, Jakarta suffered one of these predictable disasters. The rains had come, as they always do, but this time the water didn't drain. Yes, the famous putrid sewers filled up, the city filled up like a swimming pool. There were mass evacuations. Uh, At least 57 people were killed, and no bombs, no trade sanctions were needed for Jakarta's infrastructure to fail. In fact, the steady erosion of the country's public sphere had taken place under the banner of Free trade. For decades, Washington-backed structural adjustment programs uh, had pampered investors and starved public services. Yes, led to such clichés of lopsided development as the glittering shopping malls with indoor skating rinks surrounded by moats of open sewers. Of course, now these sewers have failed completely. Another footnote here. I remember the great Arundhati Roy... One of her essays on uh, what was happening in India, she pointed out that there were, uh, uh, well, I won't call them beggars, uh, laborers in rags, people with no, um, no resources at all, laying fiber optic cables by candlelight late at night, uh, the old India up against the new, um, That is, you know, public squalor right upside, private affluence, that kind of thing. Uh, She writes, in wealthier countries where public infrastructure was far more robust before the decline began, it has been possible to delay this kind of reckoning. Politicians have been free to cut taxes, rail against big government, even as their constituents drove on, studied in, and drank from... The huge public works projects of the 1930s and 1940s. But after a few decades, that trick stops working. The American Society of Civil Engineers has warned us, warned, that the United States has fallen so far behind in maintaining its public infrastructure roads, bridges, schools, and dams that it would take more than a trillion and a half dollars over five years to bring it back up to standard. This past summer, those statistics came to life. You know, the collapsing bridges, the flooding subways, the exploding steam pipes, and the still unfolding tragedy that began when the New Orleans levees broke. Now, after each new disaster... It's so tempting to imagine, you know, imagine that the loss of life and productivity, that that will serve as a wake-up call, right, yes, provoking the political class to launch some kind of new, new deal. Another footnote here, I remember, uh, in my own foolishness, I remember that our last earthquake um, was standing in a rattling phone booth down on... Uh, well, near Shattuck Avenue here in Berkeley, and there were a couple of young people there. We were holding hands and watching the street move like the waves of the sea. And while the earthquake was still rattling our little um, cage there at the phone booth, uh, I said, well, now this will wake up the community. Now they'll get busy. They'll pay attention after this. This will will be a consciousness-raising event kids looked at me like I was out of my mind. Naomi Klein goes on to say that uh, it's not a wake-up call, it's the opposite. She said the opposite is taking place. Disasters have become the preferred moments for advancing a vision of a ruthlessly divided world, one in which the very idea of a public sphere has no place at all. Call it disaster capitalism. She was on to talk about, you know, when the New York City subways flooded, the New York Sun read an editorial under the headline, Sell the subways! Yes, sell the suckers! Prison for profit, sell. Uh, if there's no profit, you see, there's no motivation for anyone to do anything, yes. Let's see. She goes on to talk about the institutions that are attempting to bridge the gap between the super-rich and the ultra-poor how these uh, uh, institutions are under attack, right? Thousands of units of subsidized housing slotted for demolition. Charity hospitals, yes, shuttered everywhere. That's the one that scares me. It never occurred to me that there wouldn't be some, some place to take the sick and the injured, uh, that hospitals could close permanently permanently. Let's see, yes, the disaster itself is used as an excuse to finish the job. Now, we know there will be more Katrinas. I can hardly wait. The bones of our states, the frail bones, aging. They will keep getting buffeted by storms, both climatic and political. This is such scary stuff. I'm reading to you from Naomi Klein's essay in Harper's, It's this month's Harper's, uh, October, Harper's Magazine. Her book is called The Shock Doctrine. She's been all over the media, and we will be hearing from her uh, more and more. Get a hold of this book. My economist son will argue with me over this, but uh, it's all about the disaster business, the racket. I was going to read you a tragic poem on the subject, yes, (laughs) yes. You know, one of those, we must love one another or die. I'm not so sure, yes. Uh, We got a line. There is no such thing as the state. No one exists alone. Hunger allows no choice to the citizen or the police. We must love one another or die. This has been Jennifer Stone, back on the air, Thursday morning, 8.20. Till then, go easy. If you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Drop the shadow out of sight. I'm Aaron Glantz, here to tell you about a new website launched by KPFA. The War comes home online at warcomeshome.org. Joshua Castile is a former U.S. Army interrogator at Abu Ghraib. I was constantly being asked, uh, Tell me about freedom, about democracy. Why am I being held here? I want answers. And the detainees were the ones who were wanting answers. But that was our job. We were supposed to be finding answers to our questions. You can hear the rest of Joshua Castile's story and other true stories of American veterans online at warcomeshome.org. That's www.warcomeshome.org. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, September 18, 2007. From KPFK in L.A.,